Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here this morning, uh, worshiping, lifting up the name of Jesus. Let's go to His Word now. Get your Bibles out. Let's go to, turn your devices on. Let's go to John chapter 4. In 2008... Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, was being interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, do you believe in God? He said, I'm always trying to work that out what he or she is. I don't know if it's Allah or Jesus or Muhammad or Zeus, but I'd go for Zeus. Following the interview, he released a text message declaring himself a, quote, all theist, a word of his invention, meaning that he believes in everything. And when I read that, I thought, you know, it seems to me that this is the epitome of postmodernism. When someone asks, do you believe in God? There are really only two choices. People either believe nothing or they believe everything, which, you know, if you think about it, if you believe everything, then do you really believe anything? I mean, that's kind of more like believing nothing. And so I, I look at that and I ask myself, why is it that we've come to this? Why is it that when a person is asked about their belief in God, it's either nothing or everything, or in, in fact, in saying everything, it's really nothing? And I think it comes back to this. They haven't experienced God. Because when you haven't experienced God, you don't know what to believe. And so you believe nothing, you believe everything, you believe anything. It really doesn't matter. But when you've experienced God, you know exactly who to believe. In fact, you can't help but believe. And I'm seeing this as we're walking through the Gospel of John just repeatedly. In chapters 3 and 4, you see these encounters where people are experiencing God, and the consequence of that is belief. I mean, it starts with Nicodemus in chapter 3. He has this discussion with Nicodemus. It starts out as kind of a theological discussion, and it ends up, you know, you must be born again. And we know from later stories in the, new, in the book of John that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. So that experience he believed. And then from there, Jesus leaves Nicodemus. He goes up, and his disciples are baptizing people. The whole world's coming to him. You know, no doubt they had heard about what he had done in the temple, and he'd thrown the tables over, and everybody's like, ooh, we got something new. There's a religious new guy here. Uh, could he be the Messiah? And everybody in the world's coming to him. His disciples are baptizing him, and that kind of creates a little bit of consternation with John's people. And so Jesus, wanting to avoid that controversy, decides it's time to head back up to Galilee. But before he goes to Galilee, he's got an appointment with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And what starts out as a conversation about water turns into a revival that not only impacts her life, but it impacts the lives of all those people living in that area near Sychar. And in fact, they ask him, could you, could you stick around for a couple of more days? And so Jesus stays a couple of more days to explain things to them, to sort of pour into them, encourage them, and all that. And, and now he's back up in Galilee. And in Galilee, he runs into this royal official who has a son who is sick to death. And in this moment of healing, this royal official has an experience with God. 
And that's really what I want us to, to lift out of this this morning. And I want us to see really what that's about and what that means. So let's start in verse 43 of, of John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 43. It says, after the two days, and those are the two days that he spent in Samaria, he went forth from there to Galilee. Now remember, in his time, Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, Galilee in the north. For Jesus himself, this is verse 44, testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, uh, both Matthew and Mark said basically the same thing, and this was the reason Jesus left Nazareth. You know, Jesus was a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth, and so Jesus leaves Nazareth because, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And from there, he goes uh, to Capernaum where he sets up a new home base in the, in the town of Capernaum, and from there he'd gone down to Jerusalem. Now he's back in Galilee, but he's not in the city of Nazareth. He's in the region of Galilee, Okay. And, and it says, so when he came to Galilee, this is verse 45, the Galileans received him, underline that word, received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem for the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So you look at this and you go, what is this? Are they believers? Notice it says they received him. Now that doesn't mean, like when we talk to somebody about the gospel and we say, you know, you need, you need to be born again and, and you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, we'll often say you need to receive Jesus. That's not what they were saying. It says they received, it doesn't say they believed, okay? You're like, well then what's going on here? Well, I, I think it's kind of like a Taylor Swift concert. You know, it's a Taylor Swift thing. Right? They tell me that Taylor Swift's current concert tour is about to break or has broken a billion dollars. And I scratch my head and go, I don't get it. I have no idea why this is going on. And you know, yeah, she's a singer. There's a lot of singers, maybe better singers. I don't know. But why is everybody so fascinated with Taylor Swift all of a sudden? And I think it goes back to when everyone goes, everyone wants to go. You know, the best way to get a person to want to do something is to tell them they can't. So when the tickets are scarce, everybody's got to have one. And so maybe that's what was going on. That, I think that's what was going on in Galilee. Jesus was the next big thing, so everybody wants a ticket. So verse 46, therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, which is another little town in Galilee, where he had made the water to wine. If we remember that story early on in John, he turned the water to wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Uh, so to set the scene, Jesus is in Cana. That's where he turned the water to wine, right? The crowds have followed him because the crowds, it's a... It's, uh, it's a whole kind of, I got to see what everybody else wants to see kind of thing. And so they're all there just to see the show, right? And then this royal official shows up with a real issue. His son is sick in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was about 20 miles from Cana. So you got it, two locations. They're in Cana, his son's back in Capernaum, and he's sick in Capernaum. And so this guy isn't like the Swifties. He's, you know, he's not a Justin Beaver believer. Justin Bieber, not Beaver. <laughs> He's not a believer. It's a real dude with a real issue, right? And his issue is so extreme that Jesus is really his last hope. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him, and that's begging him, to come down and heal his son. 
for he was at the point of death. And I thought a lot about this. You know, a lot of Jesus' miraculous signs involved healing. You ever wonder why? why? Why were the miracles, why did they tend to relate to healing? Because if, if I was Jesus and I was in this place, I would sort of violate nature. You know, that would be my thing. I would be like, you guys want to see a miracle? Let me show you a miracle. Tornado. <laughs> and I'd blow up a whole city just to prove who I was, you know. How about we spin up a hurricane in a place where no hurricanes wipe everybody out? And everybody would go, whoa, that guy must be something. But Jesus didn't do it that way. He didn't do the epic thing. He healed people. And I I thought about this, why so many healing miracles? And I think it comes back to the healing thing is more personal, right? If I were to stir up nature, you might back up and go, wow, that's impressive, but it wouldn't be personal. It wouldn't connect me with you heart to heart, soul to soul. I wouldn't be drawn to you. And the person benefiting from the healing was personally affected. And I think it demonstrates also the love of God. He wasn't just trying to impress people. He was trying to demonstrate not only his power, but his grace and mercy. And everybody who saw the healing would have instantly identified with the healer, right? Because we all want to be healed. And when we're sick and when we're hurting and when things aren't going right in our life, we just, we just cry out to God and we want to be healed. And so when I see him heal you, that gives me hope that maybe he can heal me too. And particularly in that day when, you know, when people got sick in those days, they died, you cut your toe, gets infected, you die. Uh, you, you know, get a cold, it gets out of hand, you die. And so healing was visceral and primal and of, of just really resonated with the heart of where these people were. And so there's also this tie between physical healing and spiritual healing. And when people were healed physically, it it was often the case that they were also healed spiritually. And so this royal official has a sick son. And that word royal means kingly. Literally, it's translated king's man. And he could have either been a member of the royal family or he could have been an official or some minister within the family. And you know, there were members of Herod's retinue in the early church. Uh, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 3, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to the support out of their private means. So Joanna, the wife of a guy named Chusa, who was an official in, in Herod's uh, bureaucracy, was mentioned by name by Luke as one of the women who carried spices after the crucifixion. And so maybe this is Joanna's husband, Chusa, who's coming on behalf of his son. There's another leading candidate, that's Manan. He's mentioned in Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Do you see that? And Saul. We don't know who it was. It could have been one of those two guys. could have been somebody else. But the the bottom line is, this is an important man. He's a royal official. And yet he is so desperate 
that he has swallowed his pride and he's come to Jesus begging for him to heal his son. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And at first I thought, wow, that's kind of harsh. I mean, this guy's got a genuine need. He's genuinely wanting his son healed. He's not really looking for a miracle. He's really just looking for hope, right? Why would Jesus be so cruel? And then I read it again. He said, unless you people. And then I looked at it, and that you there is not singular. He's not talking to the man. He's talking to the crowd. Unless you people, that word is y'all. And, and, and I can see him, the man's in front of him on his hands and knees, begging for his son. And Jesus looks out over the top of him at all of these people who showed up. You know, they got their popcorn. They're just looking for another miracle. A bunch of swifters or believers. It's the next big thing. And he says, you know, you people, unless you see signs and wonders, you just won't believe. And the father was too desperate for all that. He didn't care about all that. He wasn't there for a, a sideshow. He was there for a very intimate, personal reason. You know, there's something about that. You know, sometimes in churches it can just become like a dog and pony show, but there are people who desperately need God who are crying out to him. The royal official said to him, Sir. That word, sir, is kurios. It means Lord. Lord, come down before my child dies. And that word child is interesting there. It's, it's patios. It's where we get the word pediatric. He doesn't say child. The normal word for child is technon, child. Uh, it's a more intimate word. It's the word my baby, my baby. Lord, please come before my baby dies. And so he's begging him. And then look at what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, go. Your son, weos, your son lives. Present active indicative, ongoing. Your son is living. He was dying, but now he's living. And I looked at that again and I thought, isn't that interesting? The word the dad used was pideon, pediatric, my baby. It's in a neuter form. It's not masculine or feminine. Now, I know that early on, John mentions a couple of times in the story that a father had come on behalf of his son. He'd come on behalf of his son. But John is retelling the story. That's not an actual quote by the dad. When it comes to the actual quote by the dad, he says, come, my baby is dying in the neuter form, not masculine or feminine. And Jesus replies in the masculine form, go, your son lives, your son and man, I, I realize that if I'm hearing this, I haven't told Jesus that it's a boy or a girl, but he already knew. And in that moment, man, it becomes so much more powerful for me because now it's easier for me to believe, right? And look what happens. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Notice he believed, but he wasn't believing in Jesus. He was believing for a miracle. And there's a difference. This is the belief of a drowning man. He has no choice but to believe. Jesus is his only hope. I mean, I'd believe in flying pink dragons if I thought it would bring my son back to life. Whatever you say, I'm going to believe you because I have no hope. I have to believe. And so I'm believing for a miracle, but I'm not really believing in Jesus. 
And there are a lot of people who are dancing around the fringes of, of church life that are just that way. I want to believe God for a miracle, but I really don't want to commit my life to following him. And notice that this boy is 20 miles away. It would be the next day before this dad even found out if what Jesus said was true. How'd you like to take that walk home? The whole time you're worried and wondering and you're trying to hang on to belief and all you've heard about Jesus is he's the one that can possibly do this and I've told him I believe and I'm trying to believe. God, help me in my unbelief. And it would be a whole nother day. I, I thought it was interesting too that the whole crowd got kind of cheated out of a miracle, right? They had come to Cana where the water had been turned to wine and they were ready to see a big miracle. But the miracle occurred 20 miles away. And they never got to kind of see it. They just saw the interaction between Jesus and this royal official, but they didn't see the boy get up out of his bed, which I think was kind of cool. I think maybe Jesus did that on purpose. But I'm with this dad, and I'm walking home with him, and I'm struggling because, I mean, he could only believe in hope. But then watch what happens. As he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living and I, I, I put myself in that dad's shoes because he really, there was no modern medicine that whoever they were, they did all they could. And his son's going to die. His son's going to die. And he knows it. And now his son lives. You guys got a son or a daughter? Do you know what that feels like? I mean, he had to just broken down in tears. He inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, notice it's yesterday. It's taken him a whole day and night. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. Now watch what happens because it says it again. And he himself believed and his whole household I mean, this time he's not believing for a miracle. He's believing in the name of Jesus. And his whole household was radically changed. It went from believing for a miracle to the miracle of belief. Why? What happened? This man experienced God. In that moment, he experienced God. He went to Jesus, a miracle worker, hoping for a miracle, but he came away realizing Jesus was who he said he was. And that's what it comes down to. So what do we take away from this? Let me give you, let me give you two ideas that, that we can kind of unpack and we can kind of, we can kind of haul home and, and maybe it'll have an impact over how you view your life in, in connection with who God is. I think the first is the obvious one. Jesus can do the impossible. I think that was the point. I mean, yeah, the guy got his son back, and that's awesome, and that was incredible, but that wasn't the main point of this. Jesus is, is the focus of this story, and it's not so much he's telling us about the man as it's, he's telling us about himself, right? And he was demonstrating who he was. He has the power over life, death, sickness, and hell. And, and that's why the Bible doesn't call this a miracle, did you notice that? It doesn't call it a healing miracle. Jesus didn't have healing miracle services. He didn't have net breaking, boat sinking miracle services. Everybody come, fill the stadium. It, look what the Bible called it. It called it a sign. Verse 54. This is, again, a second sign 
that Jesus performed when he came out of Judea into Galilee. You know what a, a, what's a sign do? A sign tells us where something is, right? Like the older I get, the more important bathroom signs are, you know? Where's the next bathroom? Warren, Warren likes to say, I used to, I used to look for places to preach, now I just look for places to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, and that just happens as you age. We're looking for a sign, right? And so sometimes the sign is a pointer, and I'm like, where am I? How do I get there? I need a sign. But signs also describe something. They tell us something, something we need to know. And I think both of these ideas are in play in this. This sign is, is telling us who Jesus is, and it's pointing us to him as our source of salvation. It's saying he's powerful enough to deal with your situation right now. And I want you to hear that. He's powerful. He can do the impossible. He's powerful enough to deal with your situation right now. Your situation may include the need for healing. And, and it's perfectly appropriate to pray for that. I, I remember uh, when I first came into the church, there was this guy that had cancer. And uh, he told the church, don't pray for my healing. And I was like, that seems really spiritual, you know. But then I realized that's... The Bible doesn't say that. It's like, well, you know, pray in God's will. Whatever your will is, that's what I'll accept. Look, I start with that. I lead with that. Hey, God, whatever your will is, I'm, I'm good with and I'm down with and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept and embrace and, and see your truth in that. But your word says in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Now listen to this part. Let your request be made known. And if I'm sick, please pray that I'll be healed and I'll pray for you. It's okay to pray for a miracle. And some of you need that miracle right now. And, and let us know and we will join you in prayer. You may need a financial miracle. You may be praying for a son or a daughter or a relationship, a marriage or whatever it is. And you need a miracle. And I want to tell you, Jesus can do the impossible. And I've seen it happen time and time again. He can do the impossible. And I believe he's working miracles in these days. He does the impossible. But be careful because the point was never the miracle. The point is always the experience. Which is the second point. The power is in the experience, not the miracle. You see, anytime God would act on behalf of someone, his broader purpose is to create an experience that leads to greater belief. Barclay said this, the only real argument for Christianity is a Christian experience. It's all about the experience. We're back to what I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, taste of the Lord and know that he's good. And I told this story about this pastor eating an apple and asking another guy, do you know what that tastes like? Because if you haven't tasted it, you haven't experienced it, you don't know who it is and you don't know what to believe. That's why it's all about the experience, right? When Jesus told us to go out and make disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he came back around in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and he told us how. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my, do y'all know what the word is? Witness. What's a witness do? A witness testifies to his own experience. And so when I share my experience with God, with you, my experience resonates in your heart and you have an experience with God. You, you feel it? 
but it's always about the experience. I think this is why Jesus said to the crowd, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe because they were so caught up in the miraculous that they missed the experience. You know, it's possible to go to one of these big events and to sit around and and watch what might or might not be perceived as a miracle and never be affected by it and never experience it because you're in the audience, you're not down in the arena. There's two problems with miracles. You ready? The first is miracles addict us to miracles. I've heard people talk about daily miracles and everyday miracles. And, you know, you need your everyday miracle. Look, miracles don't happen every day. If miracles happen every day, they would be called normals. If it happens all the time, it's normal. If it happens supernaturally in a way that nobody ever expected or could have ever happened, it's called a miracle. And if you make the miracle the thing, then you're always going to look for another miracle. Phil Yancey put me onto this years ago. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the Israelites, though exposed to the bright, unshaded light of God's presence, were as fickle a people as have ever lived. Ten different times on the melancholy, pathless plains of the Sinai, they rose up against God. Even at the very border of the promised land, with all its bounty stretching out before them, they were still keening on the, quote, good old days of slavery in Egypt. These dismal results may provide insight into why God does not intervene more directly today. Some Christians long for a world well stocked with miracles and spectacular signs of God's presence. I hear wistful sermons on the parting of the Red Sea and the ten plagues and the daily manna in the wilderness as if the speakers yearn for God to unleash His power like that today. But the follow the dots journey of the Israelites should give us pause. And here's the part I wanted you to hear. Would a burst of miracles nourish faith? Not the kind of faith that God seems interested in, evidently. The Israelites give ample proof that signs may only addict us to signs and not to God. Miracles addict us to miracles. Second, miracles are temporary. You know that little boy that Jesus healed, that royal official's son? He died. I don't know how he died. It's not written how he died. He died. He's not with us today. In fact, I would say every person that was healed in the Bible eventually died. In fact, every person that's ever been healed from the dawn of time has died. Every person that ever experienced a miracle of God who lived before us has died. Why? Because at some point we're going to cry out to God for another miracle and the answer is going to be no. Because it is appointed unto man once to die. I mean, this guy received a miracle that didn't last. And listen, if you have to have a miracle to believe, then what will you do when the miracle doesn't come? Here's what happened. This guy experienced God through a a miracle, and then he believed. And, And all the people watching it, there were people in that crowd who saw his experience, and they believed. But we also experience God without a miracle and still believe. Here's what I, I, please hear this. You don't have to have an, you don't have to have a miracle 
to experience God. You know, the Old Testament character Job had his life completely crushed. I mean, he lost his sons, not one son, all of his sons. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. If anybody needed a miracle, it was Job. He needed a miracle worse than anybody. And I'm sure he prayed for a miracle. But he didn't get his miracle. And yet he still experienced God. And he still believed. He said this in Job 42, verse 5. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees, my eye sees you. The important thing is to experience God and believe. You may do that with or without a miracle. I might even argue that Job's experience without the miracle was even more powerful than that royal official's experience with the miracle. A little over a year ago, Jeremy Camp was here at North Monroe. Amazing concert. I, I didn't realize how many songs he had written and how many songs that we listened to. You know, I'm kind of a novice at those things. But man... And he sang that song, I Still Believe. And, and he told a story, you know, he wrote that song and his wife died of cancer within the first year of their marriage, of ovarian cancer. And he, he needed a miracle. And he, they prayed for a miracle. And he didn't get a miracle. And yet he still experienced God. And as he says in the song, I still believe. Scattered words and empty thoughts, this is how the lyrics go, seem to pour from my heart. I've never felt so torn before. Seems I don't know where to start. Now listen to this. But it's now, now in the middle of the pain, without the miracle, it's now that I feel your grace fall like rain. From every fingertip, washing away my pain. He didn't get the miracle, but he still experienced God. Here's the chorus, because I still believe in your faithfulness, because I still believe in your truth, because I still believe in your holy word. Even when I don't see, I still believe. See, here's the thing. The power is in the experience, not the miracle. Maybe you're here today and you need a miracle. You know what? Let's pray for your miracle. I want to pray that whatever your miracle need is, I'm going to pray that you get that miracle. And I know that God is all powerful and he can do what we can never do. So let's pray for it. Jesus is a miracle worker. But my prayer is that whether you get your miracle or not, you experience God and believe. You see, if, if you don't experience God, then you don't know what to believe. And if you don't know what to believe, you'll believe nothing or you'll believe everything. And of course, to believe everything is to believe anything, which is to believe nothing, right? But if you experience God, you'll know what to believe. In fact, not only will you know what to believe, but you won't be able to help but believe. And so the most important thing is to experience God. So I'll pray for your miracle. But I want to pray even more importantly that you would experience God, whether you get your miracle or not. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, your word says that you are all powerful. Jesus could do what was impossible. He healed that little boy from 20 miles away.
He didn't use a prayer cloth or do some dramatic event. He just spoke the word and that boy was healed. Father, there are people here today who need a miracle. Their marriage needs a miracle. Their health may need a miracle. Father, their finances or their relationships or maybe someone they love. They've got loved ones in their family with addiction. They've got kids who are in rebellion. They got a dad who's abusive. And Father, they need a miracle. And I pray you would give them that miracle. Not so that they would become addicted to miracles, but so that they would become addicted to you. They would experience you. And through that experience, believe. But Father, whether you give us those miracles or not, God, we want to experience you. We want to experience you when you rescue us from the pain and we want to experience you as we walk through the pain. Because when we experience you, we know what to believe. And we can't help but believe. And so, Father, I pray those who struggle with unbelief that they would experience you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.